listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to scientist and author, Dr. Camilla Pang. Science has been my mother tongue when people weren't. It moved with me and my thoughts, no matter what place I was, no matter how happy or sad or lost I was, it was, I knew that everywhere I stood, it was there around me. Camilla shared her insights into living with autistic spectrum disorder, how she uses scientific principles to better understand human beings, and why she considers her neurodiversity to be a superpower. This episode was recorded virtually using Skype. Dr. Camilla Pang, your book covers a range of scientific concepts and then applies them metaphorically to what it means to be human. You go as far as describing the book, and the book is explaining humans, as an instruction manual for human beings. Can you tell me why you feel you needed to write this book? When it came to me writing it, it wasn't something that I always had in mind. <laughs> Much like all best things in life, they happen by accident. And when I was writing it, it was purely just for my own clarity and gather my observations to try and figure out what was going on. Why didn't I fit? It was a kind of dys- dysrhythmia I felt with my species. And I was just very, very curious. And when I realized that I didn't get all the information from science books that I read, um, I then realized that I, I needed to write down my own and then put them on a piece of paper. It was a very impulsive, reflexive process that I didn't even attribute to me being a writer. So therefore, when I started actually writing the book and putting it into this contextualized format, the thing that prompted me most was when I was writing my PhD thesis. And um, I chose the biochemistry because I wanted to, you know, to encapsulate all sides of science to understanding um, what was around me. And when it came to the, the, the leap so to speak, um, was when my sister, she was getting a bit of FOMO. She was like, oh, I want to do everything, blah, blah, blah. You know, just, you know, normal stuff. And then I was like, well, you can do that. Just network theory. And she was like, what? And I was like, well, duh. And so I didn't actually realize because I always felt behind. So I just realized that everyone had these calculations in their head. And so I thought, oh, maybe someone will find this useful. And also, most importantly, to shed a light on people who are neurodivergent and that we always feel behind, but oh, actually, we've just got a different solution. You describe it in the book as having a, a cocktail of things that make you neurodiverse. So for people who might not know, could you just explain um, some of the uh, diagnosis that you have that, that changes the way in which you navigate your life? Oh, so basically, um, if we're going to go f- all formal about neurodiversity, I'd have autistic spectrum disorder. And everyone's got their own preconceptions about that. So hold fire on that one because they're all different. And I've also got ADHD and also I've got generalized anxiety disorder. And those aren't just things that just, you know, are in your larder and that come out now and then. They're there 24-7. It's not like, oh, it's Friday. Oh, brilliant. On the weekend, I'm just going to be normal. It doesn't happen that way. You can have a panic attack at 11 o'clock on a uh, Saturday morning when you had so much planned. It's quite unpredictable. And this has been the work of my lifetime to know what my patterns are. And when it comes to neurodiversity, in, in my case autism it's very much about obsession with routine with detail with following things through and to be able to have quite prosaic routines that people don't really think important but actually they are because all these kind of nuances that 
humans live through naturally and kind of just swim through automatically don't happen. It's not something that we have any direction on. And so that can lead to a lot of panic attacks. In terms of ADHD, it means that you can be quite impulsive. And all these things, you're like, oh, what? If you're impulsive, then why aren't you shouting at me? Why aren't you doing this? And sometimes it doesn't come out that way. It comes out on doing things, like information. It enables you to follow things through. And anxiety is just, I mean, if I'm going to glam it up, it's probably just trying to simulate every possibility so that you know what you're doing. Because it could be anything. This idea of neurodiversity features throughout the book, and, and you describe yourself as someone who is very um, neurodiverse for all of the reasons that you've just described. I, I just wonder for anyone who doesn't know, what is neurodiversity and how does that differ from being uh, this thing called neurotypical? I think neurodiversity is something that a lot of people, I mean, I say everyone's neurodiverse. <laughs> it's like saying we're all biodiverse. It's just the, the extent in which we can hold it in better and our tolerability of the system or vice versa. It's mainly the vice versa because it's about you, if you're going to the beat of your own drum, how much you challenged by that. That, that, that That's not a fault of yourself. But when it comes to having cabin fever, as someone who's neurodiverse, you'll often feel like you're not seen. You'll often feel like you have something to say, but you can't say it in the way that it should be said. So there's lots of shoulds that we have to do, especially when we get older and, and expectations. And a lot of people who are neurodiverse who find it hard to clear those boundaries. That's not a bad thing, but it's also a bad thing if you're trying to make everyone the same shape. <laughs> well, I mean, you go one step further and you actually see your, and I'm going to quote from the book, your cocktail of neurodiversities as a superpower. In what way are they a superpower, Camilla? Basically, a lot of people, when they hear me say it's a superpower, I just want to firstly say I'm not trying to trivialise mental health as if it's some kind of next turmeric latte. That's not the case at all, okay? Because a lot of people have said that. Superpower in the sense that if you just get rid of all the expectations, if you just get rid of all the shape of the system of what we should be doing in a certain context, to be able to be creative, this whole freedom that a lot of people think, oh, if only I was like this, to be able to live based on instinct and impulse and what you want to do is a very brave thing to do. And people who are neurodiverse naturally feel they have to do that. It's not something that they almost choose. So for example, I had to write this book. It's not something that I planned. And to be able to follow your life so instinctively, also regardless of what's thrown at you, and to still pursue what you want and to be alive in that regard is, is actually a superpower in itself. So there's many other different features I can talk about, but I think that's the main one is to go via your own instincts. You said you felt like you had to write this book. And did, did you have to write this book for yourself or to help communicate some of your diagnoses to both your friends and your family? Initially, I, I didn't, when I wrote it for myself, I didn't realize I was actually writing it. Um, I just collecting stuff um, to make sense of what's going on. But also, I think inadvertently is my way of so I wrote this book in hindsight for my mum. She's wanted to understand her own child and I couldn't um, figure out how to do that in any other way that was neurotypical, aka, mum, this is what's happening, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it doesn't, ha doesn't happen that way, especially when you're a kid and you're trying to find your outlet. And so over time, I wanted to make this book for her and be like, this is what happened and I want to reassure mums out there and people that it's not just, ah, oh, she's got autism. It's more like, oh, okay, 
<laughs> I can see that what's going on. I've learned something from that as well. <laughs> you know, it's different. And, and the way you help other people sort of understand these things is through scientific metaphor. So to better explain that, each chapter in the book uses a different form of science to explain the ways in which you navigate your own reality. And I wonder why science? Why is the scientific metaphor so useful in helping you to understand some of these things? It was the only, guess, olive branch I could cling on to that was based um, on, it was uh, evidence-based, it was law-based, it was data-driven, and it was an objective, bottom-up principle that I could hold on to and find my direction in my thoughts and my decisions and also benchmark myself against other people so that I'd know how to maneuver. It wasn't a comparison thing. It was more like, okay, what's going on? It was a clarity measure. And I think a lot of the time, a lot of people have actually said to me, oh, why didn't you just read psychology? No, that's that's up here. That's all wavy. It's It's still based on a postulate that you'd need a social nuance to understand. And for me, this is my type of autism. Some people like reading psychology and they get it straight away, whereas me, I didn't. I just didn't feel like it, I didn't taste it. And when it came to science, it was intuitive to me because it was something I could see directly. Like even just looking at, you know, birds flying as a science and an art behind that, I thought, oh yeah, that's how I feel on a Thursday. You just... <laughs> It's, you just, it's just something that I've always connected with. And to be able to connect people to science, which is an alien subject to quite a lot of people, and I wanted to kind of bridge that gap. I mean, what's so clear in the book is that you are a self-confessed science nerd. And I just wonder, what is it about science that gives you so much joy? <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit of a science nerd. <laughs> um, but when it comes to um, science, it, science has been my mother tongue when people weren't. It moved with me and my thoughts, no matter what place I was, no matter how happy or sad or lost I was. It was I knew that where I stood, it was there around me in different scales and different forms. And that was actually, it was very reliable. It was like, it's okay, we got you. You can find inspiration from any detail and model that uncertainty based on something that is concrete. And to be able to have that, um, I guess, I wouldn't say friend, but yeah, it's a, it's a support that is just reliable. And when you make the most of what's around you, because you feel like you deserve to be there. And that was what science did for me. In the book, it feels like you've turned your life into a science experiment. Would that be fair to say? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes, so yeah, basically is the answer. I mean, what are some of the results of that scientific experiment? <laughs> basically, I try and experiment every three to six months with a parameter in my brain to see, just out of curiosity and also for self-improvement, you know, it's nice to do, it's like a debugging of code. It's always evolving, it's always adding, and then you're like, oh no, that's gone wrong. Why has it gone wrong? I don't remember what I did. And so quite a lot of the time, it's trying to get out of that rut. But getting out of that rut, you come up with a solution that no one else has before. Because no one else has done these experiments. They just feel them and they don't really associate what they're doing with how they feel when they're stuck. And so I feel like every chapter is an experiment by, first of all, modelling. Oh, if I model like that, then does that mean that? It's my way of predicting what's happening and finding routine in the day. Like this last year, I've been trying to um, affect my parameters in my brain to be more normal, to be less impulsive, to be less, um, I don't know, less ADHD, just just to taste what that's like and how to get people more ADHD. So it's boring, basically. Sometimes it's very boring because <laughs> you're trying, 
<laughs> you're trying to be normal all the time. I mean, looking at some of the some of the scientific metaphors you use, one of them is something we cover a lot on this podcast, which is the idea of machine thinking and AI. And in one of the first chapters of the book, you look at human thinking and you try and see how it's very similar to machine thinking. What can computers teach us about how we make decisions? In terms of the computer teaching us how to make decisions, um, you, can learn, you can learn so much. So... For example, the first chapter, you've got boxes and trees. These are just two data structures that I feel are most representative of how the extremes of people in terms of how they make decisions. I feel like the computer has actually a lot more freedom to explore than a human. And it's quite a juxtaposition to see because I see the transition as humans are naturally kind of of volatile, unpredictable, chaotic, creative creatures, because that's what's gotten us so far. And then we've got this kind of machine that we've made just based on pure logic. And what we're actually trying to do is make humans more more singular and computers a lot more creative. And you, we can teach about how we treat computers, our attitudes towards the superiority of computers compared to our own species. So I think on that level, it can teach us a lot about how we're treating humans and our chain of thoughts and how highly we regard them with, you know, in comparison to technology. Humans are far more complex than AI. And I know that's a very obvious thing to say, but we, I think that needs to be reiterated. I remember learning uh, machine learning and deep learning and all that stuff in a book and I expected something really novel I was like oh this is gonna be a great afternoon it's gonna be amazing and I read and I thought I don't really feel like it's anything that I haven't done before and then my friends were like oh you sound so arrogant I went no I just don't feel like I just don't feel like it's anything new because it's all based on what everyone's thinking, but we're trying to ramp up the basics of human psychology to make it scalable and hope that it would create a difference. In the book, you look at AI as a useful way to understand your own thinking. And because of your diagnosis of ASD, you often would do this thing called box thinking, which, as you say in the book, limited your understanding of the world. So what is box thinking and what did AI teach you about how to overcome box thinking? Okay, so box thinking is, I guess, in adult terms, um, all the shoulds. Um, what you should do. So when you have, you have different boxes that you live by, if you're a child, you try and find evidence based on, okay, that number plate, therefore today's going to be a good day. And that's why it sometimes doesn't make any sense because you don't know what boxes to look for. You just know what you see and you try and stitch things up and hope and hope that it create direction to your day. But as an, as an adult, we have shoulds, which are actually boxes based on others' expectations and realities. And what that can do... Um, is be a bit of a comparison game and also it can it can be useful in some regards and help us make a decision and help you know because if we're in limbo then we you won't move anywhere so what it helps us do is be like okay where am I what am I doing and then from that you kind of funnel your way through but you've got to be careful because you don't want to end up starting from a place of narrow perception because then tree thinking which is a different way of looking at the day based on the, the data you have, and then you kind of work your way upwards. So that's kind of an, an unsupervised algorithm. So you let the data lead the crystallization of thought, where the box thinking is just like solution-driven. You know, everything else is wrong, 
So Camilla, in, in, the, in the book, you describe how you go from someone who is very comfortable with box thinking to being able to do unstructured and sometimes messy and random thinking. And you did that through using the concept of a decision tree. Now, firstly, what is a decision tree and, and why for you personally, was it a useful tool to change the way in which you made decisions? Okay, a decision tree is basically being able to see a point in space and time, so an event or, or, or a data point, anything, and to not just take it at face value, that that is the only solution, but to think about it in terms of its vicinity and what that means for any possible solutions. So for example, a box thinking, I used to be like, I need to do this routine at this time, because if I don't, then I'll have chaos. Because if I didn't have those box, everything would be chaos. That's why I did it because I, you're lost in the ocean. I loved the sense of security I had when it came to routines. This is when I was like very little. And from that, that's why I was a box thinker. But then I realised in teenagehood, you collect all these boxes and then you're kind of in a room full of boxes that all look the same. And so you can't separate the kitchen from the, from the living room, from the play area. It's a bit, it's a bit like quarantine. <laughs> but when it came to the decision tree, it enabled me to kind of put the boxes in relative to each other. So it, I considered all the things that were important to me, but... I could tackle them cluster at a time. So when you get all the boxes, you make a tree. So based on how they're closely related. And then from that, you get a kind of the tree, the tree diagram. You've got the things that have in common. You've got the things that, that are very different and divergent. And it's very nice to see how they are related because then you have more room in your head and you can kind of transverse between and not feel as anxious. Well, on reading that chapter and learning that you there's different ways of thinking, many neurotypical people may look at that and go, well, surely that's that's obvious. I've never really thought about my thinking yeah. before. And have you had that sort of response to those sorts of chapters? People who've gone, oh, wow, okay, this is this is not something I've ever needed to, uh, needed to think about think in about. this way. <laughs> yeah, every chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of nice in a way. I think that's one of the things I wanted to do with the book is not, I wouldn't say to challenge people, but for them to help recognize themselves in the book and then them associate the different principles. I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. I'm I'm a bit of a tree today. I feel like I need, I feel a bit lost. I feel a bit everywhere. And that's great to recognize that, to attribute, I guess, the, I guess one of my friends called it the scientific analogy, or I call it model because it sounds more, you know, cool. Um, which is the same thing. It's knowing what is happening because that's one of my problems sometimes to this day. I could be hungry but not realize that I need to eat. I could be, I could be cold but not realizing to put a jacket on. And it's just helping tag the feeling to what you need. And I think every human has that. How have um, other people who describe themselves as neurodiverse who might have similar diagnosis to yourself, how have they uh, found the book? And what sort of feedback have you had from other neurodiverse individuals who've also had these issues with describing how they navigate their lives? Yeah, so I've, I've had some really positive feedback, which is really good because it's always a bit risky putting yourself out there and not knowing who's going to connect. And when it comes to the, especially neurodivergent people, because you don't know what you know the, the degree of overlap, even though it, even though you feel the same, might they might see it differently. But what I've tried to do in this book is make sure that the scientific principles are uh, things that everyone can see and map to to do the process that I did. So the responses have been great. They've connected with it on a level like, oh, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, I'm so glad this exists. It's, it's, it's been it's been lovely. It's connection and 
I, you know, it's nice to have that. <laughs> well, I, well, I want to look at some of the ways in which you think about human connection in itself, because as well as looking at AI in the book, you look at some biological processes. And in uh, one chapter of the book, you go as far as saying there are parallels between proteins and people. So what are some of those parallels, Camilla? It all comes down to the fact that we're all evolutionary modules who were our structure so our form and our behaviour are ultimately determined by our genetic sequence, which is true for us and true for proteins. But when it comes to our role in, in, in society, we interact with others and we can also adapt to different types of modularities that can evoke different cellular responses. And what I really like about proteins, so for example, every, you know, if I was a, a bit more of a normal child I would have maybe picked up a Barbie that'd be ideal if a girl picked up a Barbie that'd be perfect and I could attribute a personality to her and then be like oh but Barbie says this but actually I didn't really know how to do that all I knew is that I knew how proteins were variable much like how humans were variable and I thought well okay that makes sense and from that I developed a kind of affinity no pun intended uh, to proteins modeling dynamic behavior of humans in the book, I mentioned about different types of proteins in the cell that, that are responsible for cell signaling. And um, from that, I kind of looked at the different personalities in a clique. So when you go into a group of people, they're not just all one blob. There's lots of different people. The people on the outside that are probably a bit more friendlier and that actually spoke to me. And the rest in the middle are kind of like, don't really want to speak to you because... I don't know why, but I never understood this hierarchy. And I realised that this hierarchy wasn't just, uh, you know, oh, this is more important than that. It was a hierarchy because every layer had a different role. And we need that diversity in order to make things happen. We need a cellular response. So we've got receptor proteins, um, which I equate to a psychological model, uh, quite a well-known one. But even with the psychological models, such as the Myers-Briggs, that's actually quite limiting because that assumes that you can only be one thing in one context. But actually, no, protein models better because a protein can have many functions in many different contexts. And I equate that to cancer evolution, which is a far more successful model than any four-letter metric. So, <laughs> <laughs> But throughout the book... Again, you use this idea of scientific metaphor, but you always focus seemingly on the hard sciences of physics, of biology, and of chemistry, rather than approaching some of these understandings of what it means to be human through the traditional lens of psychology and neuroscience. So why the hard sciences? Was that just because of the environment you were growing up in, because of the fact that you, as um, young Camilla, would would read all of these hard science books as opposed to, um, to neuroscience? and psychology books do you think if if your obsession as a younger uh, individual was on psychology and neuroscience this book would have been completely different um so if i picked up a neuroscience book first i would have then wanted to know the root cause and the deterministic laws that made things happen so that is why i picked it up because it was a bit like science gave me the basic ingredients for me to make it my own and the most flexibility in being able to model the things that I, I didn't understand. And so when it came to the other sciences, I'm not dissing any science. I mean, it all comes down to, you know, physics, maths and chemistry. So if I picked up a psychology book, it was very nuanced and it was very high level. And 
I didn't really know what that meant. It was almost like eating a ready meal and you're like, I don't really taste it. Whereas if you have the raw ingredients, such as the sciences, you can then be like, oh yeah, that's that. Oh yeah, that happens because of that. You, you can attribute cause and effect and response in a very clear way. And, and, and that was directly in relation to who became your heroes as a younger child. I know uh, Stephen Hawking had a, a massive impact on your early thinking. I just wonder what was the impact of Stephen Hawking on, on the way in which you thought about the world? I just really liked the way that he wrote and his books were kind of like my Bibles because th- they made sense to me and it was written in a way that was very clear. I mean, obviously he was a scientist who knew how to c- communicate and that is really powerful because... It enabled people to translate their own experiences into his own models. And that's what I wanted to do in my book. And also he introduced me to the light cone. So this is something... So he's also the scientist who made a big impact to me as reassuring me as a child, but also challenging me and me developing my own voice because there was a one was one bit in his book that I had a bad, bad anxiety attack over and um, it was because of the light cone and I mentioned this in my chapter on finding your goals and I mentioned about quantum mechanics and the light cone and how you kind of look at the future from now and the possibilities kind of branch outwards like a cone and then I was like well what if I'm outside the cone well, why do I have to be inside that cone? And then I remember going downstairs to my mum thinking, I don't know what to do. What if I'm there? She goes, that book would scare me too, darling. Camilla, what relationship do you have with the future? How do you, with all of your neurodiversity, think about the future? This is quite interesting because it can change every day, every hour. And I let myself be a bit Uh, malleable in that regard because it means that I'm not hell-bent on having this 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 done because you don't know I mean you could promise yourself to you know I'm gonna go to the gym tomorrow and then you feel like you don't want to and you're like oh wait a minute so how can you plan ahead I'm really bad at planning the immediate and I get really um, worried about that whereas in the long run I know what I want to do I know what how I want to feel and I just try and work my way up to get into a point where I feel happy and content. So that's what drives me. Um, I don't plan my future based on, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this, because you just don't know. It's like trying to order food off a menu in five weeks' time. Like, how do you know how you're going to feel? (laughs) <laughs> How are you going to feel next Sunday? Even we, yeah. just, we just don't know these things until we're until we're in the moment. I mean, that, that throughout the entire book, that was the most interesting thing for me. This this relationship that you have with time and with planning and with decision making, and it feels like that's something that whether neurodiverse or neurotypical, all of us could have a better relationship with. How do you think we can have a better relationship with with ourselves through understanding both our, our current self and our potential future selves? I think it's um, not being afraid to experiment. I know that sounds really cliche, but it literally is being able to take the judgment out and be a different person for a day. So I, th- I feel like a lot of people are kind of hell-bent on being consistent in every context for every person. And that's actually not, I mean, biologically possible what going through homeostasis. So when it comes to um, the relationship between yourself now and later, to promise yourself that you will do something because you want to, um, obviously, you, you know, you know for example, there might be like housework and stuff. But when it comes to time, it's man's Achilles heel. So having ADHD, it's really tested this relationship because 
you could end up being in a state of cabin fever because you feel like everything's pointing at you and you and you have no time which is why you're impulsive and then you can have the time stretched from the next hour and you feel like you don't want to get anything done because you're like well I've got loads of time so to be ADHD to have ADHD in that regard is actually something that I consider a superpower because it enables me to simulate weeks worth of living in the space of a day which is why I had a panic attack this morning but now I know a bit more about what I want. (laughs) <laughs> well, in a funny way, you, you're one of those rare individuals who, who celebrates their inconsistency. And do you think all of us could learn something from celebrating the fact that sometimes we're not the narrative we tell ourselves about ourselves? Yeah, that's completely the case. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that because that's kind of the message of the book is that you don't have to, as much as there are, there are laws, um, just to help you find your way that doesn't mean you have to live by them and be consistent all the time and every context just so you can be OCD about it I mean like I've got OCD but that doesn't mean I have it in a in the way in which I have to do the light switches mine's more different but when it comes to being consistent just make sure that I guess what your values are are, are consistent I mean, you can wear, you know, you can wear blue eyeliner one day. Well, and if people attribute that to your personality, then that's not your problem. <laughs> you just got to be able to do what you want and make sure that your values as, as a person are consistent. I mean, I mean, living in that way gives you a degree of freedom. And then in the book, you go as far as saying that sometimes you've lived as if you've had, an, and I quote, hashtag no filter. So what is, <laughs> what is the impact of living in that way been like for you? Has that proven itself useful? Has that proven itself to be a, a challenge sometimes? It makes you feel alive a lot of the time, every day. <laughs> it's, you, you pick up every single sense and you respond as if you have so much data and then suddenly you go outside and be like, oh my God, and you get really impulsive and you're like a child again. You're literally like a child again and it's the best feeling in the world. But then you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm in high Park. I can't really do that. So I feel like a lot of the time we're in an environment in which as, as kids we can do that. But as adults, for some reason, is a binary transition between you're not allowed to do that anymore. And so I think a lot of people inherently have this, but we've been taught not to. So when it comes to living with no filter, it can also means I can take things quite literally at times, especially earlier on when I wasn't as sophisticated in my algorithms per se. And it meant that I just took things literally, such as this is probably not the most diplomatic thing to say, but I don't, you know, I don't care. Um, um, for example, history I found really hard because I took it really literally. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this really well, and I ended up mistaking the Nazi Party for an actual party um, because whenever I googled it, it was just men with flags, and I thought, yeah, this is it. So that can sometimes, you don't have the nuances, that can sometimes lead to quite insulting remarks, but actually you mean well, your, 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 your intentions are pure. I mean, in many ways, it's, it's an interesting way to look at the world with fresh eyes. And do you feel like you yeah. do that every single day or every other week, every other year? How is your approach to just uh, navigating the world in general? I refresh every time I walk into a different room. Honestly, it's, it's, I've got to remind myself. Um, but that means I don't have any preconceptions. I've got no judgments. I see a person as a person. And also their social nuances, such as if they're the CEO of something, I don't be like, oh, I'm like, hi. Like I, it's literally a very, quite a simple human process. So I just see a person as a human. And I think that is something that everyone secretly craves. I mean, I mean how can we do 
better at just seeing humans as humans. Taking away all the isms, taking away any preconceptions, which I have, to be honest, I've tried to build and they're not that great because they're quite hard to model because they change, is to be able to see a person and consider a person as um, a, a stem cell, which I use in my other chapter about they're just, you know, they're molten globule. You don't know what they are yet, which is why I always give everyone a chance. I don't assume that they're going to be nasty or this. I just, you give every human a chance because they deserve to. Some of those issues of dealing with other human beings comes from fear. And again, in the book, you look at fear and you look at how to overcome fear. And, and one of the ways in which you uh, do that is to look at the science of light. Camilla, how can the science of light teach us about how to approach fear? Well, when I wanted to, so when I'm having one of my meltdowns, you are often blinded on every angle. You don't know where to look. You, every every movement you make, it feels like it hurts and you don't know what to think. And there are times where I feel like you want to separate all of those, all of this pressure into its component parts. And you want to know why, why are they separated? What is it about them? What's the nature of this thought versus this thought that makes this one go this way versus this way? And to be able to model that is something that I've done based on the refraction of light and through a prism. And prism specifically because, I mean, you can it's quite a nice diagram. You can see the white light going through and then all the things. It could be any kind of refractive material. But I choose a prism for this because you can see how all the different kind of wavelengths of light disperse in the different colours and it's really beautiful and it's also not deconstructive at all but to be able to kind of make something out of what you felt was nothing and everything is a very powerful process and for that I use the laws of photonics and light physics to help me think about light and dispersal but I've also noticed that light doesn't refract on any object it refracts on ones that are open to it and the ones that are more opaque they won't refract. They won't even let the light in. And therefore, they're kind of clouded to it. And I didn't want to become that cloud because I knew that that didn't solve anything. And I think that can be also attributed to people who are closed because they're, they're fearing it. you got to let the light in. And that is actually quite a scary process in itself. But in my chat, I say, well, if you're scared of this, then you know exactly where to start. So in many ways, humans should learn to become uh, prisms, is what you're saying in that chapter. Uh, yes, for lack of a better word, and to notice the properties of a prism that enable it to make something beautiful out of something that, quite frankly, scares the life out of you. <laughs> well, from light waves to, to other waves, you use wave theory to understand a multitude of things, and one of those is to how to achieve harmony in our lives. Mm. You've got the human temperament, which isn't just linear. It's undulating beyond um, our own recognition, and we often wonder why we're responding a certain way. And to be able to feel in, on the same wavelength as something, um, not just on what we're saying, but also in how we are, on our energy levels, on our temperament, on what makes us tick. And this is how I've kind of connected with different scientific theories. For example, if I'm like, oh, hang on a minute, I'm looking at that, that model resonates with that. And so to have that kind of, I guess, telepathy between different people, but also forms of nature is something that I've always done. And to be able to model it, to make people realize what they resonate with. So for example, there are some people that you meet that you don't have to spend loads of energy getting to know or feeling a connection with just because, you know, they're on the same wavelength as you. And that is also to do with environment. And you need to consider that in terms of the time frame and what makes you tick. And for example, if I 
if I'm with someone who's very much like me, we're like, yay! And then we're like, ah, go away! So there is a a kind of medium ground where you need to consider what wavelengths are constructive in making this euphoric sensation of connection versus destructive and what kind of drains your energy. So in in an environment which I, I don't resonate with can make me realize I'm spending more energy being sane in that environment than if I was somewhere that I resonated with more. It feels like in the book there's two types of explaining that you're doing to follow on from that. One is explaining human individuals and helping us to explain ourselves better. And the second one is explaining the collective and the relationship with other human beings. So how do we better understand both individuals and the collective? Are those two different things or is there some form of interrelationship there? So one cannot exist without the other, but nevertheless, for some reason, the collective likes this whole homogeneity because it's easier to handle. You know, it's kind of lazy, actually, but it's just something that people do to keep track of what's happening. When it comes to the individual level, this is something that you have your own rights to live by. But there is definitely a tension, and that's because you have expectations of yourself as a person, but also they don't necessarily um, adhere or in line with those of a collective. And it's just your choice as an individual um, and also what that means to the species. Though right now is actually quite an interesting time. I've been thinking about this a lot because we're kind of stripped of our own individual freedom of doing, of living our own lives for the sake of the collective. And so right now in quarantine, in lockdown, you know, on, on an everyday basis, I'm like, oh, I wish I could do this. Ah, But then I'm like, well, actually, if I did that, I wouldn't want to put others at risk. So this is probably why quarantine's so tiring, because we're constantly in this battle between living our own individual lives and also wanting to make sure that the collective as a species um, survives. Do, do you think in many ways, if we had a better relationship with ourselves and ourself, that we'd have a better relationship with the collective? Do you think issues with uh, social breakdown really come from a, a breakdown of understanding ourselves? Yeah, completely. Yeah, you need to have breakdowns to break down because then how will you know a bit more about yourself? No, it's true. I encourage it. Well, I don't encourage it. I don't discourage it. Different. So, for example, if I know that I'm stuck with something and this is tension between the shoulds and the collectives in my own individual mind because we've got lots of different shoulds, we then need to reassess what's going on. And to be able to break down, for example, or do this prism thing, which often goes hand in hand, you need to break down what's happening in your mind and what that means for your next course of action and to understand because that's ultimately what you want to do you, you you're getting all scared because you're not too sure what to make of it and I think that's something that a lot of people just need to do naturally it's just I call it debugging it goes one step further because really what you're talking about is empathy, empathy between human beings. And you've attempted to understand empathy yet again through the use of a scientific concept. So could you explain a little bit more about your vision and view of how empathy works? So empathy is summarized in one line, giving it a good go. Because uh, this is something that I feel a lot of people don't realize. They think empathy is all hearts and flowers and hugs and all of that but actually it's about being able to a person be like what is going on how can I help them and how can I help myself help them and to be able to do that in an invisible way especially when people say oh Melise she's probably not empathetic because she's got autism you're like no that's not 
you sound ignorant there because you have no idea what I'm going through mm. and also for generalization. So I feel like there's this kind of facade of what empathy looks like as if it's one hit wonder. It's just, this, is, this is how it manifests. But empathy is more of a process by which a human tries to understand what is going on. And if they understand, they can be like, okay, I can make that better for you. For example, if I Google, if I, my friend was upset, I'd be like, she needs a hug. How do I do that? Google. How many seconds should I hug someone who's crying? And from that, I kind of built up a way in which I could kind of extrapolate, okay, she's crying big time. Let's just hug until she pulls away type thing. So this is something that I've had to, this isn't because I'm cold hearted. This isn't because I don't know how to hug. It's just knowing the nuances to make sure that that person is as comfortable as they can be. And, and nuance is really the key. It feels like neurodiverse people can sometimes have trouble to understand those nuances. But what you're doing is really highlighting those nuances through scientific models. Um, yeah, it, it highlights the nuances that I found difficult and from that try to break them down using scientific models. But there is more to it than that. The book is a foundation. It, it enables you to live up until, I don't know, a solid 25-year-old, but then you realise, hang on, there's more to life than that. You've just started. You've just got your utensils. What do you do with them? And I think to be able to describe everything through, dare I say it, the reductionism of science, it doesn't really do life justice in how unpredictable it can be and also how rich it can be in the senses and also in the connection. So it's great start, but there's a lot more to come. You do such a wonderful job at translating all of these very human, fuzzy processes to very hard science models. And, and as you just said, that can sometimes feel a little reductionist. So do you think there's still any place for wonder? Do you think science will eventually explain everything about what it means to be human? Or do you think there are some things that we will never be able to explain through the scientific method? Well, when you say never to be able to explain, to have that box of unexplainable things, we need to know what can be explained. So actually, we do both. You do that so that you know where the gaps are and so you can just fall into it. So this is one of the reasons why I like science, because it helps anchor me. I'm like, I, I don't want to model everything in life because I'd feel like, A, it wouldn't do it justice. And secondly, good luck with that, because out of all the algorithms that I've done, I still don't know the meaning of the word fine. I don't think any human does. So it's all context, it's all nuance, and it depends what you want to do with it. So I've gotten to a place where I understand some humans and those that still challenge me, but it all boils down into those 11 principles in the book, which is why I made it that way. Because I'm like, oh, that's what you're doing. So if you've got 12 threads, like a massive hairball, you can then be like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. You can see how they interact. So it's not just I'm reducing you down to one process. You're actually a multitude. You're a massive hairball. But that's fine because I know how the interconnections are, are, are made. So I wouldn't want to reduce someone down to a specific principle. <laughs> Beyond the book, you, your work is in translational bioinformatics. In fact, that's what your, your PhD is on. What is translational bioinformatics? Okay, so the translational part of it just merely refers to the fact that you're bringing scientific principle and research and development into clinical practice. So um, translating it into a, a drug, basically. And 
the bioinformatics part of it um, is basically biochemistry on the computer. So you can deal with lots of different data. You have a bird's eye view of what science is when it comes to modeling it, because you deal with data that is on a cellular level, on a molecular level, on an atomic level. And it's it's fantastic, which is one of the reasons why I chose it, because you have that freedom of scales that you can map in between. When it comes to dealing with biological data, especially when you've got a lot of it in different labs, you can then bring it together. And sometimes you can have, especially in the age of big data, we need to be careful of what we consider, especially if we can do machine learning and decision making on it. So this is one of the things that I work with now. I look at the cellular structure of the immune system. And specifically, I was looking at um, dimensionality reduction. How can I gather and crystallize the most insightful point of this um, map, for example, and use this as a reference for this diversity of the map. Like, how do you capture a person in a four-letter metric? It's a dimensionality reduction. When it came to me looking at mm, the book and writing it as its own entity, I actually had to read quite a lot of bioinformatics papers in order to make sense of the structure on how I'm going to write the book, or as I've already written it, but assemble the book. It's an assembly problem. It isn't a writing problem. And I thought, okay, we're thinking about assembly, but also dimensionality. And at the time I was looking at dimensionality reduction, um, because how do I crystallize the point in which I can obsess over and then every other detail kind of float around that. For example, this chapter is this, this chapter is this, this chapter is this. And that can be quite hard, um, especially when you've written so much stuff and it could be lots of different shapes. It's a similar chain of thought as we've tried to train a computer to um, undergo dimensionality reduction from all these possibilities. And from that, crystallize the most valuable options that represent the fidelity of the high dimensional space into something that we can act upon. <laughs> well, I, I love how you you used biological science as the way to structure the book. So not only is the book full of science, but the book has been structured thanks to your own scientific uh, inquiry. Did, did you always know you were going to end up working in some form of hard sciences? Was there a moment in your life where you knew that science was a thing that you wanted to pursue? Uh, yeah, I've always wanted to be a scientist. I didn't really know what that looked like, though. So it wasn't something that I had an end goal in mind. Um, I don't often have an end goal in mind, which is a great thing, but also it could be annoying when you're doing housework. So, for example, uh, I wanted to study the sciences because they helped me and also they they can evolve. And I was like, this is great. I connected with it. Why wouldn't you want to study something that you connect with and also you love to study? And I was ready to be challenged by it. I was confident enough to be like, yeah, I can move on from this. And to feel confident in something is a big driver in pursuing it in your career because there was so much that I felt behind on. I was like, this is something that I know more of and something I enjoy. And when I did my PhD in the interview, they were like, why did you do a master's? And I went, well, because I was ready for I was ready for it. And that was something that really impacted my career choice is doing something that I love and something that I'm good at. Did you think in many ways your neurodiversity makes you a better scientist? Well, it depends. I think in the lab, probably not so much because I forget which liquid and which tube. Um, I've had to actually find the niche um, of science that I probably enjoy most and also is at the pace in which I think and I won't forget. So when it came to studying science, it was a bit of a battle between my love of science and the everyday reality of it. 
And I liked standing in the lab, but I get I get really bored by the centrifuge and then I forget what I'm doing. But whereas when I'm coding, even though that's got its own battles, because coding languages are actually full of nuance, by the way, um, I enjoy the theory of it and the mathematics of it. And the, the more certain a mathematical rule is, the less likely it's to represent reality. So I know that when I read it, I'm like, oh, there's going to be something missing. But <laughs> what is the gap? And how can I fill that gap? Now, having read the entirety of the book and, and exploring all these different scientific concepts and looking at how you've applied them to what it means to be human, it feels like I've enrolled at the Dr. Camilla Pang University of Life. And if the Dr. <laughs> Camilla Pang University of Life did indeed exist, what courses do you think would be available to students? It's quite funny that you say that, because in my book, I thought the University of Life was an actual university. Um <laughs> and hope that I'd, I'd actually learn something like this so that how, how to be human, what, what are the, why are you so confused? Am I allowed to do this? Um, I think it's breaking away from the laws of the institution and knowing what we can and can't do. Course-wise, um, it's quite hard because the courses that are applicable to many people will have to be really vague and I don't like vague. So I'd like to be able to have, you know, a you know, the people to have the opportunity to translate different fields of science or different fields of art and to see the connection in between. So my school, I don't know what the specific courses are yet or the curriculum, but I know the philosophy behind it would be to make people see that there's an intersection between science and art and actually they're, they're very much the same. And if there was one lesson that you want people to take away from reading the book, what would that be? Go to the beat of your own drum, basically, because at the end of the day, if you're going to try and tune into everything else, you're going to lose sight of who you are. And it's making sure the environment that you choose, because you actually have a choice, funnily enough, um, to make sure that your life surrounds what you resonate with and to know your own shape, basically, and not be afraid to do that. Even if it means you sitting on the table instead of the chair, go for it. Brilliant. Do what makes you tick. <laughs> and on that hopeful note, Dr. Camilla Pang, thank you for your time. Thank you to Camilla for sharing her unique perspective on what it means to be human. You can find out more by purchasing her book, Explaining Humans, What Science Can Teach Us About Life, Love and Relationships, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.